Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby to get ourselves a treat. Let's all go to the lobby. Hello and welcome to Movies vs. Capitalism, an anti-capitalist movie podcast. I am Frank Capello. And I am Rivka Rivera. Frank, welcome back. Thank you. Thank you so much, Riv. Yeah, I was out last week, had a bit of a family emergency. It was it was really just um, my cat, my cat Milo. Really can't recommend pet insurance enough. If you don't, if you don't have it, wow. please get it. Mm-hmm. Please get it for your pet. It's so worth it. To be fully transparent, this would have cost me thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars, like out of pocket. Damn. Um, but I was out, so thank you and our friend Jesse Conweiler for stepping in and hosting the intro last week. I really enjoyed your guys' conversation, so thank you. Thanks. Absolutely. Well, we're glad you're back and that right now things are good with Milo. Yeah, he's good. He's good as of right now, but we'll see, you know, that, and that's just life. <laughs> that's <laughs> yeah. just life. I mean, not to uh, laugh, but well, good segue because we want to talk about yeah. comedy. But um, so. that's true. Um, so I recently watched a stand-up comedy special, a comic that I really love a lot. His name is Gary Goleman. I've never heard of him. He's like, I believe he's Gen X. He's been around for a long time, but is like only now in the last few years starting to get sort of like the recognition that he deserves. He's beloved by other comics. Um, and he his new special, I believe it's on Mac is called Born on Third Base and it's it's basically a, a lot of his material is about how he grew up like pretty poor and working class. I, I would describe it as like a populist stand-up special and he's one of the few like straight white male Gen X comics that has continued to get better and better. So I highly recommend it uh, to anyone who likes humor about like why billionaires deserve to get their heads chopped off. Like that's the kind like the, <laughs> like that's the kind of comedy that he's he's doing he he released another special a few years ago about his struggle with depression which uh called the great depression which i did actually see that like, one. really helped me out a lot when i was really dealing with a lot of uh oh, yeah my issues with depression so he's just like a really thoughtful sweet comic and i was just so glad to see him take this turn and be like you know what i'm gonna make my whole special about how much you know rich people suck so yeah gary gallman born on third base highly recommend it Ooh, I can't wait to check it out. I definitely, re- I definitely saw the Great Depression and and remember enjoying that great title. Yeah, he's he's really great, and it was a, it was a nice contrast because like I think right around the same time, Dave Chappelle's latest Netflix special was released uh, a few weeks ago, I think at this point, but and he made the news again by once again having to just like go in on making fun of, of trans people. Wah, wah. Um, yeah, his favorite source of comedy these days. And it's just such a bummer. It's it's a bummer to see someone like Chappelle, who I used to love so much, like kind of turn into this reactionary, really sort of just like anti-trans activist in his comedy. But then I'm heartened to see someone like Gary Gullman, uh, who has not been massively famous, now like evolve into like an even more thoughtful comic that is like actually, actually critiquing the conditions that we are living in today from from the vantage point of like the people from the vantage point of working class because i think it's so important and we don't get a lot of that especially in in like more established you know comedians who once they reach a certain echelon of success then they they are they become in a different class i let's get into it that was um a bummer is a kind way of saying it it pisses me off but i 
don't think that's a problem. You know, I think it's a good thing. So I wanted to share, I think, my favorite um, commentary that was actually made me, I think, was the the funniest thing to come out of Chappelle's most recent special was Trace Lissette's commentary on it. Have you seen this, her TikTok? I have not, no. So at this point, it's getting client. I don't know what doll hurt Dave Chappelle. I really don't. But it's giving disgruntled client. It's giving angry trick. It's giving he wanted to kiss on the mouth. And she was like, no, I don't do that. I upcharge for that. If you want to do that, you got to give me X, Y, Z. And he was like, oh, no, ma'am. And his ego was bruised, honey. So he went on a rampage. <laughs> it's giving angry trick. Am I lying? Dolls, am I lying? It's giving angry trick. <laughs> oh my god who goes on to make three specials three comedy specials about the dolls because you can't take so for context for anyone who doesn't know this is dave chappelle's third netflix special in which as you mentioned he makes an extensive amount of transphobic jokes the first i think was the closer in 2021 and there was actually a massive backlash uh for now or what was perceived to be a backlash. There was a lot of organizations spoke out, GLAAD, National Black Justice Coalition. There was a walkout by transgender employees and allies at Netflix. Netflix actually had, I think they re responded, Netflix retaliated. And so some of the employees went to the National Labor Relations Board about that. So it was a big upset. People were talking about it. There was a lot of discourse. This was special number one, okay? Since then, there's been two, three. So that's what that's what Trace Lissette is responding to. It's like at this point, it's tired, it's expected. But I think what's important to note about this, right, is this this is under the umbrella of cancel culture. And you'll hear Chappelle and other comics who make transphobic, racist, sexist jokes whine about that they can't say anything anymore because it's it's cancel culture. When in reality who the fuck is being canceled? Like, we know that this this term, cancel culture, is meaningless, and I think it's actually a really important terminology to the project of capitalism, and particularly to the spectacle that capitalism requires, like this level of performance that capitalism requires to make us believe in a free market culture, in the myth that, like, the consumer has all this power... Does that make, do you see where I'm going with this, Frank? Like, it's it's sort of like this, if we think cancel culture is really a thing and, like, we can cancel Dave Chappelle in all of the, with our discourse and all of these things, which are really, really important, right, in terms of our dialogue among each other, but no one's getting canceled. This is his third freaking special. We saw it again with, like, some, a comedian like Joe Coy who's on stage at the Emmys making sexist jokes like he knows what he's doing and we feel some sort of way seeing all of the celebrities and the women put their heads down like "Ooh, that's cancel culture he can't say that but he is and he's getting paid a lot to say it and i think that there's something related to the conversations we have around media and capitalist realism right about like what it makes us when we feel like things are getting canceled but the actual reality that they're not which is why I think 
ideas like call-in culture and different ways to actually deal with these realities are important, right? Because I think cancel culture basically serves the capitalist agenda. I said a lot there. I hope <laughs> I hope you followed a little and it wasn't just total word salad because in my brain, I was on that train. Yeah, no, I completely, completely agree. Um, especially for famous people, cancel culture does not exist. Because like the, the, the one thing at the heart of cancel culture that people are really afraid of is like, oh, well, they'll lose their job or they'll lose the livelihood or they'll lose money or like whatever because of reputation aside. It's so interesting, right? They don't call it that. When it happens, suddenly it's no. not cancel culture. When there's a real authoritarian backlash to free speech, that's not cancel culture. <laughs> sure. No, of course not. Actually, now that we're talking about this, I'm debating maybe cancel culture is actually a real thing because because for a long time I have just said that cancel culture is just the internet. It's just, you know, like we have the internet now. Everyone can voice their opinions. That is what the that is what I I think the majority of people uh conceive as cancel culture or they 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 conflate the two. They're saying like, "Oh, it's cancel culture." And I'm saying, "No, it's just the internet." But now I'm realizing actually maybe cancel culture does exist because we've seen it recently and we've talked about it on the show about the way that people in entertainment who have spoken out against Israel's crimes in Gaza, Israel's genocide in Gaza have been canceled. Melissa Barrera from Scream lost her job because of speaking out. Right. But but it is interesting that that is not called cancel culture. That like yes. silence, silencing people who speak out politically is not cancel culture. But when Dave Chappelle wants to be transphobic and people speak out about it, that is cancel culture. So I guess really now I'm realizing cancel culture is just more what conservatives and reactionaries think of when people who disagree with them call them out for the terrible things that they say and believe. Yes. And I guess our role as, right, artists and the space of the imagination is to pay attention to those terms used and then think past them. So I love Adrian Marie Brown's concept of call-in culture. I love exploring then. So what are the alternatives? What is... What is Ask, what are the aspects of cancel culture that we are driven towards that are desirable? Well, it's like a accountability, right? Accountability, exactly. And um, wanting to be heard and wanting to be able to be in dialogue. Like, I don't, I don't have an issue with, you know, there's a lot of this stuff too, like with the comedians, like, you can't take a joke. You know, everyone's so sensitive these days. What the fuck is wrong with being sensitive? Like, I think that's a great quality. And I think, it, I, I, but at the same time, like, I don't personally think, like, I don't think being triggered is a bad thing. I don't want to trigger people unnecessarily. I want to know when someone finds my language, quote unquote, triggering. But I want that to be an opportunity for deeper dialogue and not a place of just shut it down. And I think it should also be said that, like, usually the people who are triggered are from are usually from groups who have historically been marginalized in one way or another. And now we are just reaching a point of social evolution, especially here in the U.S., where those groups are saying, hey, actually, the way that everyone's been talking and behaving for the last couple hundred years, we're not fucking cool with it anymore. I also think if you're being triggered the other way around... Some ways you could say Dave Chappelle is clearly very triggered by people's reaction to him and he just shuts it down and 
you know, there's like a power dynamic there. I'm just going to get on my mic and do whatever at you. I do think there's this opportunity, you know, there's, it's, I don't, I, I, I also want to hold the value that I do really believe in everyone's ability to change. And I think it would be so powerful to watch him. It's so disappointing three Netflix, yes. three specials in with that much power of that mic. And I'm not expecting anything from him. And I've learned to kill my, I've been learning more and more to kill my darlings. Right. And trying really hard not to put people, especially not celebrities on pedestals, but if there could be a change there because he's deeply triggered. And again, I think it's an opportunity to call in and to investigate what about this is so upsetting. And the last thing that I'll say is that comedy has always been evolving and always been changing. And the last thing that I want to mention, because I think it's a really great resource to understand sort of this moment, um, there's this uh, comedian historian, his name is Cliff Nesteroff. Cliff is spelled K-L-I-P-H. Um, and he just published a new book called Outrageous, A History of Showbiz and the Culture Wars. And I have been following Cliff for a long time. Basically, he's a comedy historian. And this book, he, he's been doing this work for a while. And this book is the summation of it, of tracking the history of comedy and showing how through pretty much every single era of comedy, there have been people who, as, as comedy has evolved, there have been people who have said like, hey, don't do that kind of comedy anymore. Like, and he, he starts with like in the 1800s with minstrel shows and once minstrel shows went out of fashion and the people mm -hmm. reacting to that and vaudeville and all of like the racist, sexist stuff that vaudeville would do. And when, you know, when, when that started becoming out of fashion, people would say like, hey, this is racist. And the vaudeville comedians were like, why are you canceling us? You know, it's, it's, the, it's, the, it's basically he's saying this debate around what can be said, what can't be said in comedy isn't a new thing. This isn't like something that just started five years ago. This is something that has been happening since the inception of like performed comedy itself. So it like it really pushes against this idea that like people are just too sensitive these days. It's like, no, no, just people are always changing. And sometimes certain forms of the comedy that you're doing like has to change with the times. Otherwise, it needs to die. Um, so I just wanted to recommend that. Again, it's Cliff Nesteroff. The book is called Outrageous. I'm probably going to get it and read it soon, but I just wanted to recommend that for you and our audiences. Yeah, we could go on. I mean, this is a big, big topic. All right. Well, yeah, you're right. We did uh, just talk for a while, so we should get to our conversation for today. But before we do, just want to let you all know that this podcast is produced by the two of us. We perform all of the necessary labor to make this show happen. And as we're trying to practice our anti-capitalist values, we will not be selling ads on this show. We rely completely on community support to keep the show going. So if you're able to support us, please consider subscribing to our Patreon. For just $5 a month, you get access to our entire back catalog of premium episodes, and you'll be directly supporting this show. You can also leave us a one-time contribution in our tip jar, and you can find all of those links in the episode description in your podcast player or by going to mvcpod.com. You can also help us out for free by leaving a rating and review for this show on your podcast player. It only takes a few seconds, and it is very helpful in boosting the algorithm and getting this show in front of more people, so we really appreciate it. All right, we're going to take a break. We'll be right back with our conversation about Michael Clayton with the letter hack himself, Matt Strackbein. Okay, so we are here with a very special guest. Matt Strackbein was born and raised in Maryland before moving to Colorado, where he embarked on a successful career as a graphic designer and outdoor apparel designer. He now lives in South Carolina and works as a comic book creator and podcast host, promoting leftist values and various online figures under his moniker, The Letter Hack. 
We were also guests on The Letter Hack recently, so welcome. We're so excited to have you now on our podcast. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. Matt, um, I'd love to learn a little bit more about you and your background, because when we were on your show, you know, you were interviewing us. We didn't get to, uh, the chance to ask you a bunch of questions. So I know we just got a little bit of your bio, but tell us how you got into this now political media space. So um, I had my head down for a lot of years. I was not paying attention to what was going on. I was um, working in an industry where I had no formal training. And so it was up to me to be as dedicated as I could be in order to learn on the job. And it was, it was a struggle in a lot of ways. It had nothing to do with my lack of formal training uh, to keep the ship afloat. And in doing that, I didn't pay attention to anything that was going on in politics. I barely knew what was going on in the news. At one point, I, I remember looking back and saying, oh, wow, they evacuated millions of people from California last week from a wildfire. Okay back to work, you know, and I just, it was all kinds of things. Like I knew the name Bernie Sanders. I had heard about Occupy Wall Street. I had no time to pay attention to any of this. I eventually broke out on my own as a contract commercial artist. I was doing art directing for Comic-Cons, which was a lot of fun for me because I was an attendee of Comic-Cons. So working oh, for cool. them was like amazing. I was, I, I was behind the scenes, like running into people like Lou Ferrigno. You know what I mean? And, and just, just <laughs> random stuff like that. So it was very cool. But I also, I was working at home and I had an opportunity to, um, yeah, I had to have something on in the background. It was during the 2015 Republican primaries. And I was like, wow, this looks bad, right? Like <laughs> this, this is going to be very bad for the country or yeah. really, really bad for the country. And I had like, casually been registered as Republican from like when I was 18, although I had been voting Democrat, like as long as I was legally allowed to vote Democrat. And so, you know, I, I started to put on podcasts and the internet and watch news and stuff like that. And, and I realized that there was this whole independent viewer supported online media space. And, and it was just coming about, right. There was like, the Young Turks, the Majority Report, their, uh, Democracy Now! with Amy Goodman. There were all these established groups, and, and they were growing in their own way as well. And so I started to listen to more and more of them, and I realized I could just be, you know, I do warm-up drawings every day. I said, why don't I just draw these people and put it online? I had been on Twitter and social media at one point and realized, like, I'm just contributing to the vitriol. I'm not doing anything productive. I don't like this being on Twitter. So I got off. And when I decided to start drawing people that I would, uh, you know, I'm sitting there watching their podcast all day, every day. And when I was drawing them, I would say, well, well okay, I'll start up a, a new Twitter account. And I'll just put this online. And I slowly started to like poach the audience of these, these shows. Mm -hmm. Their viewers became my followers on Twitter. And there was this cross pollinization going on where fans of one show were learning about other shows and and after about a year of doing this i was like i'm drawing like 60 independent online news figures and so yeah i started to kind of take it seriously right mm -hmm. and i was like well well people are looking to me as like this hub for all these different outlets like they could come to the letter hack quote unquote and i honestly didn't 
it was just my Twitter handle. I meant to go by Matt Strackbine everywhere all the time. Mm-hmm. But they were calling me the letter hack and they were calling my art a letter hack. They would say, oh, you got letter hacked. Meaning like somebody said one time, you're not on the left until the letter hack draws you. And I was like, well, I don't know about that, but you got verb. I love that. Yeah, right. So I'll, yeah. I'll take it serious. And by the way, listeners, if it wasn't clear, we've been letter hacked as well. Yes. So. Yeah. yeah, you have been. Proudly. Been. I guess that officially, proudly. <laughs> Yeah, it's a glow, it's a real glow up getting letter hacked. That's it was, awesome. and it was a lot of fun. <laughs> well, so that's basically the story. I mean, I, I started drawing people on my YouTube live, and then I came on camera and and said, well, let me try and draw them and interview them. So I, I invited, I don't know, maybe 12 people to come on and be interviewed, thinking one or two will say yes, and they all said yes. And wow. every, I mean, I've had like a few who won't get back to me. Otherwise, everyone's like, yeah, well, let's work it out. And so I'm very honored by that. And um, it's been great. I've done over, I think I just did my 65th interview last wow. week since last February. So it's been just about a year and it's going strong. Wow. Congrats. That's such a cool Thanks. story. Very yeah. cool. Fun. What I love so much about what you do at The Letter Hack is this intersection of of your art as a means like that's what comes first is you're going to sit back and I'm going to draw you and I just think that's such an intimate it just immediately changes the nature of the conversation you're going to have with your guest because it's it rather intimate to sit and just allow someone because you're at, you're allowing yourself to be seen in a very specific way and to be drawn and so i just think that's such that's such a fascinating way in which is why i love your interviews and that also the genesis of what you do came from just your desire to use your inherent creativity to make a political difference and so that and that's something we talk about all the time like how and a lot of our listeners are interested in how do I make a difference with specifically with my art, with my creativity? And so I just think that's really, it's really great. Yeah, I was gonna say, and a lovely reminder that if you just start doing something and if you are, if you just put care into it, and then if you ask other people to get involved, like you were saying, like asking people to be guests on your show and they just say yes, it's sometimes it is that easy. And I think there's, so, I think we in this world believe like, oh, no one wants to help me. No one wants to get back to me. Mm -hmm. I'm going to be bothering everyone if I ask them for mm -hmm. anything. And, you know, maybe sometimes, but a lot of the times people want to help. They want to, they want to participate. They want to do stuff. So that's, that's such a cool, um, encouraging origin story, I should say. Yeah. Nice. Thank you. Mm -hmm. I always like to ask people for their origin stories. Some people go all the way back to the beginning and mm. where they were born, who their parents were. And some people start at college. Some people start at the beginning of whatever it is they're doing now, like their YouTube show or whatever. And so I, I more and more, that's my favorite part of the interview. Additionally, I think what's great about your origin story is that you're honest about what your political journey, that that we need more stories of that, that you, so many people feel like, well, I missed the boat on being a political person or that's just not who I am. And that we need more, that's part of revolutionizing is allowing people in on the process. That's something we believe in and why I think this using popular culture to talk about politics is really important. But that at any point, anyone can be radicalized or revolutionized oh, yeah. and touch, you know, and that's really important to hear those stories. 
and to know that. So if you're listening and you feel like I don't, it's it's a lot, it's too much. I haven't, I don't know how to be involved. It's just small steps, and everyone needs to be. I mean, the movie we're talking about today, Segway, uh, is a story about radicalization. You could say someone becoming mm -hmm. radicalized late in their life, late in their career. Matt, you chose. Uh, such a wonderful film for us to talk about today. You chose the 2007 movie Michael Clayton, written and directed by Tony Gilroy, starring George Clooney, Tilda Swinton, Tom Wilkinson, Sidney Pollock, and Merritt Weaver. The budget was $25 million, made about $93 million worldwide. If you've never seen it, this follows the story, and spoiler, by the way, and if you've never seen this movie you know, would maybe recommend pausing and going to watch it because it's 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 a good it's a good like espionage thriller. So uh, Michael Clayton follows the story of Michael Clayton, played by George Clooney, the fixer for a high end New York law firm. When the firm's top litigator, Arthur Eden, Tom Wilkinson, has a manic episode during a deposition while representing the chemical company U North in a multi-billion dollar class action lawsuit, the firm sends Michael Clayton to clean up Arthur's mess. We soon learn that Arthur has discovered U North's unequivocal guilt in the case and is planning on exposing them, but his plan is cut short when U North's in-house counsel, Karen Crowder, played by Tilda Swinton, sends two hitmen to kill him. After Arthur's death, Michael learns about Arthur's plan and finds himself caught between his own firm and Karen's murderous plan. Okay, so some historical context for the time that this film was released. It was released on October 5th, 2007, the United States is still mired in wars in both Iraq and Afghanistan. In January, Nancy Pelosi becomes the first female speaker of the House of Representatives. Also in January, Steve Jobs introduces the first iPhone during a Macworld keynote addressed in San Francisco. In February, at the 79th Academy Awards, The Departed wins four Oscars, including Best Director and Best Picture. Also in February... Illinois Senator Barack Obama announces his candidacy for president of the United States. Ever heard of him? Ever heard of him? In, in April, 32 people are killed during a shooting at Virginia Tech, one of the deadliest mass shootings at the time. In July, the Dow Jones Industrial Average closes above 14,000 for the first time in history. In August, retail mortgage lender American Home Mortgage files bankruptcy, signaling the oncoming of the 2008 financial crisis. Other films released this year include There Will Be Blood and No Country for Old Men. And a carton of eggs is $2.70, a gallon of milk is $3.80, and a gallon of gas is $2.80. That is 2007. <laughs> 2007. Um, so, Matt, first thing we ask our guest, why did you choose this movie for us to talk about? Well, I have two reasons why I chose this movie. One is, you know, I'm a huge movie fan. And one of the things I love most about movies, books, comic books, is um, when they give you an ending, whether it's a twist or, or just new information, that cast the entire film in an all-new light. So you could go back and watch it and get a completely different perspective on it. What's unique about this film is... We're shown that they do that. They give you the second viewing in the movie, in the same movie. We're shown the end of the story right at the beginning. And then those scenes are repeated in a new context at the film's literal end. And so I really do appreciate when, when a movie gives you the chance to quickly put pieces together as it's happening 
And then you go, oh, wow, I had a totally different take on this movie at the beginning. Now I see what was really going on. So I just, I, I thought that was unique to this movie and kind of bold because that beginning can be sort of misleading, but not in a bad way. So now the second reason, I first watched this movie at a very pivotal point in my career, my current career at the time. When I first saw the movie, I was in a corporate environment for the first and only time in my life. I had been working there for about a year. It, it was in the outdoor apparel industry. It was a very high-end ski brand that I was working for. And a year before I started, the company, they'd always been private for like 30-some years, and they had just gone public. But the financial crisis was hitting. Uh, the economy was tanking. There wasn't any snow in Europe that year, and sales were down, like, like profits were down like 30%. Oh and this God. company had planned to buy and then quickly sell us for a profit. And then that would just go on and on and on, but they couldn't. And so they were doing layoffs and they were doing all kinds of like, like remember in office space where they bring in the bobs. Yes. Oh, yeah. like we, <laughs> we literally had that. We were calling these two guys, the bobs and they were going oh around asking God. everyone, oh God. what day of the week are you busy? When are you busiest during the day? Uh -huh. Are your coworkers busy? What do your coworkers get up to when they're not working? And it was just like horrible. So Oof. suddenly the entire industry is in a pitfall. There's layoffs at the job. People are jumping ship as well. People are quitting. Um, and so somehow I ended up the last man standing. It was like, I had been on a team, I was a production artist, and I had been on a team of like 10 total people, and now it was just the lead designer and me, and like a real skeleton crew of like merchandisers and product developers. And so you can imagine things are beginning to fall through the cracks very quickly. Sure. And so they would bring things to me that I had a little bit to do with, like we'll say, you know, downhill ski race suits, those one-piece race suits that skiers wear in the Olympics. They would bring that, the, you know, I did the patterns for those. I would put the art on the patterns and send them to the factory. And so when there was no one to oversee that department at all anymore, they would give it to me and say, well, since you have something to do with it, maybe you could oversee the whole thing. It's off the rails. Can you get it back on track? And that happened a lot. And I ended up taking on a lot of stuff that I had no qualifications for, had no idea what I was doing. And so, I, you know, did you, have you ever heard of the 14 wolf solution? Have you ever heard of this? I have mm -hmm. not. So this is a little off topic, but it's, it's relevant. So in, in the 1920s in Yellowstone Park, they, you were allowed to hunt wolves and they got rid of all of them because they thought they were a threat to like cattle ranchers in the surrounding area. And what, what they didn't realize is that they completely eroded the ecosystem and threw off the natural course of um, evolution there by allowing like the elk population exploded and whole rivers dried up because they wouldn't migrate anymore. They had no predator, mm. no natural predator. And so now beavers are like an endangered species. So what I did was uh, what they ended up doing, they said, okay, we need to put wolves back. So they figured out <laughs> the exact number, 14 of them, and then where to put them and everything course corrected. And so in my day job, I was like, look, everything is a crisis. We can't keep being in crisis mode. So at some point you stop using that word and you just start referring to crisis as like work. And so mm -hmm. whenever like something would come up and it was like, this is off the rails, we don't know what to do. I would apply a 14 wolf solution. And in the office, wolves translated to 
resources. How many resources do we need? Exactly which? Is it personnel? Is it materials? Is it budget? And then how quickly do we need a course correct in terms of when do we go into action, right? Mm -hmm. So I would find like a 14 wolf solution for every crisis that came up. And I eventually began to master being like this extreme version of a resource manager. Then I saw Michael Clayton and I learned what a fixer was. And I was like, oh my God, I'm a fixer. Oh, wow. <laughs> this is literally, yeah. I'm the janitor for messes nobody wants to clean up. And I found wow. it so relatable. And I'm up to my ears in, in capitalism. We're making high-end, expensive product for people. And everyone's broke. And we're mm -hmm. trying to like convince people they should be spending their money on this kind of stuff, like a new ski jacket, a new $1,000 ski jacket every year. I would show up in Europe at a ski race factory and they'd say, can we help you? And I'd say, yeah, I'm here to test the air porosity of 700 race suits for the U.S. ski team. And they go, you are? And I'm like, yeah, I know. I don't look, I'm not the guy normally, but trust me, they, nobody else wants to do it. So here I am. And so I, you know, when they, when Tilda Swinton's character, Karen Crowder says to Michael Clayton, who's this guy? He's not partner yet. He's worked there for how long? What does he do? I could relate to that. I felt, wow. I felt very much like that. And, and when I, and I'm a nerd, so it's hard for me to not relate to main characters and stuff. I always tend to do that and I know I shouldn't, but like when he wants to get out, he's always talking about having walk away money and getting out of this process and this system. I started saying to myself, okay, I need a plan. I need a plan to get out. And I eventually went freelance and that's when I started art directing by contract and I could sort of pick and choose who I wanted to work for. And you look at somebody like a Comic-Con and, and they need everything. Print material, merchandise, web graphics, banners, everything. Badges. And I'd say, well, I'm your fixer because I can do all that. Mm -hmm. And so now I can wow. pick and choose who I want to work for. And I can decide, like, are these capitalist pigs? Is this an independent, like, comic book festival? You know what I mean? I can jump mm -hmm. in and do it for a very, uh, very affordable rate. But like cover all the bases. So anyway, every time I that watch Michael so Clayton, cool. I can't help but think back to this like moment in my life where I was, you know, it was classic fixer. It just, mm -hmm. you know, it wasn't for a law firm. Well, it's so cool because it sounds like this film is deeply a part of your origin story. Is it fair to say yeah. that it changed your life? Yeah, it really did because it gave me the context that I was missing. I didn't know that what I was doing was a thing. And so as soon as, you know how it is, like you're, you're going about life and when you realize like, oh, other people have had this experience, now you can benefit from their experience. And although Michael Clayton's a fictional character, it is a real world thing. Yes. I think that's the most powerful thing that art does. It gives you the opportunity as an audience to rehearse these scenarios yeah. and see ourselves, like not only seeing stories and seeing real stories on screen, but that we think if I was that person in that situation, which, and you might have the revelation that you are, you get to rehearse the feelings of like, what would it be like to, you know, towards the end of the film when he has to decide, is he going to stay, is he going to stay the janitor? Is he going to stay the fixer? Or is he going to make a different choice here? Yeah. And they, they, I, at least a couple of times they call him a miracle worker and he's offended by that. And you should be offended by that because there is no snap of the fingers and the job is done. It's real work. It's actual real work. And, and referring to somebody's job as, oh, he just does magic. Oh, work your magic. 
I get that you're just sort of being off the cuff and casual, but it's it's not accurate. And it could be offensive to somebody who's putting in. I mean, I worked every day in the office for like two years and I would go home and keep working. I was doing like 20 hour days sometimes. And so when somebody was like, he's a miracle worker, I'm like, no, you guys should be hiring people to work underneath of me. I should have assistance. And this is, this used to be the work of like 20 people. And now it's one guy mm-hmm. and capitalism or a corporation is like, this is awesome. We have one guy doing this. As soon as he quits, we'll hire like 10 or 15 people and they'll scramble to pick up the pieces. But until then, who cares? And so it is like, you know, being reduced to covered in filth, as Arthur says at the beginning. Yes. And and I think that miracle worker, we first hear that in kind of like in the in like the second scene when Michael is called to uh, one of his law firm's client's house because... Uh, that client has just uh, done a hit and run, just like hit someone, drove away back to his home in Westchester. Very, very wealthy guy. And it's when we're introduced to Michael, we learn that he's the fixer. And and Dennis O'Hare, who plays the car- the the client brilliantly, like such a just such a rich prick. He's basically saying to Michael, like, all right, what? so what are you going to do to get me out of this? And, you know, at this point, we've learned this is kind of like near the end of the story. Like you were saying, Matt, it's like, you know, the beginning and then we flash back. And when he calls Michael the miracle worker, and Michael says, "No, I'm the janitor. I'm the I'm the one here to clean up your mess." And it's it's a brilliant introduction to the character because we've we haven't learned like what he has gone through up until this point throughout the entirety of the film, which we're about to see. But you can see that him working within this system is just absolutely eating away at him. And the idea that this rich guy is like, "Hey, so what are you going to do to just get me out of?" potentially murdering someone and hearing that frame to him as like, what, what's your miracle going to be is he's like, he's lost his patience. He's lost his ability to tolerate these people like doing this kind of dirty, disgusting work for this guy. Who's like, Oh, you're just going to be able to get me out of this. Right. And, and it's also a, a brilliant scene because Michael's like, no, there's nothing to get you out of this. Like you hit the guy, the police are scraping your paint chips off of the, the guardrail right now. They know they're going to come in a second. You got to get a criminal attorney. There's n- there's no fixing this. It's a great introduction to the character and and seeing like what what kind of disgusting work is being required of him. And then you know and then obviously we get into the rest of the story, which gets even darker. Yeah, that that hit and run scene that is a very literal metaphor for the rest of the movie. I think these entitled rich people who think that they're the victim as soon as something doesn't go their way, even when they're in the wrong, they, they immediately lawyer up. Apparently this guy's had a lawyer just on retainer in case this stuff happens. And, and, um, if, if they're not hearing what they want from, from their, their legal consultants, then they immediately say, well, maybe we can lie our way out of it. Maybe we can buy our way out of it. Right. Mm -hmm. And that is exactly what happens because the way the major chemical company um, poisons innocent people through their drinking water, that's very much like a hit and run, if you ask me, you know, because they're immediately like, well, oh, we, yeah. can, we can lawyer our way out of this. And I think what I like about what Tony Gilroy does here is he assumes that, like, throughout the movie, he assumes that we get that bad stuff like this goes on, right? The, and that and that bad people get away with this stuff in a very legal way. 
they legally get out of trouble all the time or, or suffer very minor consequences. You know, it's usually just a, a, a payout, right? Um, they buy their way out of it again. And, and in the DVD commentary, Gilroy says it, it's a movie about what happens in the kitchen of the restaurant, not the dining room. And so, and, and to me, that's like, right, because we don't get a bunch of details about the lawsuit or, or the crime that's been committed. We get enough. Well, we get plenty. But instead, we see how it begins to affect people mentally and emotionally. And it's a very emotional film, right? And, and throughout the movie, everyone is giving Michael Clayton this real hard time for being like a degenerate gambler even though he seems to not be gambling at the time, right? Like he's given that up for the time being, but they're, they're always questioning, like, like it, it's like a moral, a, a moral question, right? Like, why are you gambling away your money? That's bad. But they never question his morals for working for this law firm or doing this right. horrible stuff in the name mm-hmm. of defending this evil corporation. And, and they really are set up like the evil bad guys. But I love that, that comment that it's about what happens in the kitchen of the restaurant and not the dining room. I thought that was really a cool way to put it. That's really fascinating. And it's interesting as well that in, let's say in Michael's kitchen, he's also someone who, because of his, well, he's the janitor, the fixer, he gets a lot of help fixing situations because of his relationship to the NYPD, because his brother is a detective. And that was I thought that was really interesting. Like you're saying the morality of that, even though at the end of the day, I guess they sort of do the right thing and he and they help in that. There's just so much where you're like, there's just so much shit that's unfair all around that no one's playing by the rules in any of this and how it gets. And I think that's great for this lead. He's really an anti-hero. Like he sort of becomes a hero at the end, but the whole time you're like, this guy's not likable. He's a bad dad. He... Very bad dad. Yeah. Even with, even with, you know, he's not good at fixing, which I I love characters that are good at their job and can't do it for their life. It's like a classic, classic thing. So he can't Mm. be the janitor for his own life. Everything is, he can't keep the, um, the restaurant going. But yeah, I'm curious what your thoughts were on, in terms of politically, like the painting of the police in this movie and that relationship. I couldn't tell if I was like, is this, yeah, I'm just curious your thoughts. I thought that the ending, like, let's just skip to the ending. When the cops come in and arrest the bad guys. Yeah. I didn't, I didn't find that very <laughs> believable. I find that less believable as life goes on. Um, okay. Mm. She, you know, Karen Crowder essentially, or, you know, admits to murder. She says, like, I'll pay you off so that, you know, we can get out of this. And they've got all that on tape. So they have evidence. So, yeah, they'd make a move. But if there were a sequel to Michael Clayton, Michael Clayton 2, it would start off with them not being in jail, right? And like they've bought their way or lawyered their way out of it. But but ultimately, I think that because what Michael Clayton was originally a defense lawyer. Is that what it was? A defense attorney before he was the fixer and he comes comes from a family of cops. He worked as an assistant DA. Um, his yeah, his dad was a cop, and I think it's like his brother now is the detective. Uh, so he yeah, he worked as an assistant DA, then goes to work for this firm, and was on their litigation team for a few years before, at some point, someone realized like, oh hey, you're actually better at doing the dirty work. 
Yeah, so I don't think his upbringing in a family of cops did anything to guide him toward like a morally upright <laughs> career choice. He he doesn't like go in that direction. Yeah. And so I don't think that maybe that's possible if you're raised in that environment. I think that you, I, I think his brother became a cop because it was expected of him probably. His other brother becomes like an addict and he isn't contributing much and he's struggling to to get his life back on track and and they talk a lot about they talk more about him than they show but they talk a lot about his struggle so you don't know if that's legit or just their point of view cuz these are the same people that think Michael Clayton is a degenerate gambler and he seemingly isn't for the time being right but i think that like you just look at the siblings right it's like one guy became a cop okay typical one guy became an addict. Okay, not good. And the other guy is like maybe the worst of all of them as this fixer for a law firm. And you know what? They they say more than once that there's 600 people in that law firm. They're like, you got 600 people up there right now. We got 600 people in here right now. Why can't I get this information? And it's like that's 600 people turning a blind eye. And they yeah. know what they're up to because it's uh, Sidney Pollock's character says... Um, you know, you've been here 15 years. I got to tell you how we pay the rent now. You know, he's like, this yeah, thing yeah, is yeah. smell bad from the beginning. Like we know yeah. this is bad. We know we're not doing, but look at the billable hours, mm -hmm. right? He's like, we're making millions here. Like they toast champagne with Arthur at one point because of the amount of billable hours. And, and so it's like, you don't even care to wrap it up on behalf of your client, much less, the actual victims because you're just banking. And that's the thing is like, everyone's turning a blind eye. There's real, real victims here. It's a class class action lawsuit. A lot of people have been killed. They barely talk about it. They talk more about the fact that this high end law firm or a high priced law firm is in the middle of their own merger and they're getting a buyout, right? And they're going to make money off the fact that they make money off the fact that this company did something bad and wait a minute, people died. Do we not care about that? But no, when, when Michael Clayton decides it's time to do the right thing because of his own regret and probably um, the death of his friend was a catalyst to that, then the cops step in and say, okay, Let's make a move. Now, if we, and that's more like, because if they don't, people will be like, well, what do you do? Right. Yeah. What are you it's, guys doing? Because it's that old line that Arthur says at the beginning, that monologue is just filled with gold mm. when he says, uh, you know, he's like, I'm not the enemy here. And he goes, and who are you? And that's not even from that monologue. That's from later in the film, but that's yeah. how good his dialogue is, is you just can't help but recall it. Yeah, it's a very it's a very clean ending with, you know, them like the, the sting operation, them getting Tilda and Don Jeffries. It felt like a very Tony Gilroy screenwriting, like perfect little let's tie a bow on it, because one I, in my opinion, one thing that he does so well is for me, this is the thing that's shown through the most. I mean, there are some incredible performances, but like the structure of this screenplay uh, is so well constructed and just like knowing where every character is coming from, knowing all of the different pressures being put on Michael at any given time from between like owing money to the loan shark and needing to ask uh, for a contract from his law firm and, 
you know, and then all of the moral and ethical stuff of that's going on with this U North investigation or this U North lawsuit. In rewatching it, I, I do love this movie. I haven't seen it in a few years. This in watching it this time, my big takeaway was like this is a story about, you know, the toll that this system takes on people and how it's just eating away at everybody and and how everybody is compromising something about their beliefs or their morals or their ethics and it's it's from everyone it's from it's clearly on michael you know he's not a gambling addict because he's happy he's not a bad father because he's happy like this this doing this kind of work is clearly taking this toll on him you know arthur has a full-on manic breakdown but even i forget the character's name but the guy who works for the loan shark you know when he finally is able to pay him off and i think the guy says like you know you know, no bad blood between us, right, Michael? And he's like, nope, you're just doing your job. They, and they're friendly, which is, it's such an interesting choice. It's like the guy who's showing up a few times in the movie is like, hey, you know, if you don't get this money, like... That's what's he's, scary. He's gonna, these guy's going to kill you. And they have like a really nice rapport. And Michael's like, oh, okay. But the, and the, at the end, he's like, you're just doing your job. And it really highlighted, especially in the way that Arthur's dialogue is written, just how unnatural this system is in making us do this or making these characters do this kind of work and the natural uh, recoiling of the body and pushing against this in the way that Arthur's talking about, like, you know, the poison that he's been ingesting and how he's had, like, this new rebirth and he's covered, you know, like, all of this, like, animalistic imagery you know, there are shots of Tilda Swinton after she's ordered the hit on Michael just sweating in the bathroom and having like a full on panic attack. And it's just so many different points in this movie. It shows like the physical, natural reaction to working within such an unethical, mm. immoral and unnatural system. And that's something I thought was really beautiful in, in watching it this time around. Yeah, they keep Ooh. saying like, well, OK, so. We always hear in the real world that, um, you know, we're supposed to be pulling up our bootstraps and have this uh, individual economic success, right? And then, and then you have in the story, there's these farmers. That's like the epitome of that, right? They've they've made their way. They're living off the land. They're successful farmers. They're all killed by this chemical company. And then, you know, it's it's like the defense of that company's right to profit at all cost is exposed as real capitalism. It has nothing to do with individual economic success, really. They only say that because it's like sweeping your lack of success under the rug. And capitalism has a lot of casualties, and it sure as heck isn't going to be a corporation. And I think that the defense of that happens on many levels but in this movie it's just through this high-end law firm and then you get arthur saying like you know michael clayton says you're a legend and he goes i'm an accomplice i'm defending a cancer and if you think about that like if doctors jobs were to hide the fact that you had cancer or something like that it would be horrible like there's no way you could get away with that but in terms of like a business doing that on a society or a, a population of people happens all the time it's totally normal and it's been normalized and that's bad <laughs> that's yeah. like really bad but that's what our society has turned into in a lot of ways and and i think that this movie really does shine a light on that it doesn't do anything to like i said the the end when the cops show up that's kind of unrealistic that the cops would just 
do their job. But but on the other hand, like right, that they're not terrified and that they have any power in this situation. I was like, uh, yeah, right. Like you have power in this situation over this billion dollar corporation that yeah. probably has ties to the government. I doubt it. Right. Well, they keep showing that boardroom and they keep talking about the board of directors and they're in an auditorium full of people. And it's like, that's the board of directors. There's definitely some government connections in that room. Right. And that's, you're doing all this horrible stuff for your board of directors. Right. But, um, I think that it is the preferred outcome to have the cops come in and arrest these guys. That's what we want to happen. That's what should happen. And so I am glad it ended that way. I love when Don Jeffries, the head of the company, U North, he's like, what's going on out here? Hey, call security. And then he sees the cops and he's like, here we go. Arrest this guy. Oh yeah. Like the cops just show up the second you want them to. That's kind of true in the real world, I guess. But I love that this guy is so full of himself and so entitled that he thinks the second he needs the police, they will be there. They will be in the room mm -hmm. going after the guy that he's unhappy with and he doesn't even know why. He's just like, he's an annoyance, arrest him, here are the cops, it worked. And I, it is gratifying to see them arrest him instead. It's very gratifying. I'm, I'm curious, and I'm just asking this as a genuine question, thinking about constructing these kinds of screenplays and like just thinking specifically about the effectiveness in terms of revolutionizing people if there's the ability to do that through this kind of art and certainly it obviously really impacted you at this moment in time I'm wondering about the role of like that's kind of satisfaction because I felt it too it would have been really really annoying if they hadn't taken the plea or even if Michael had just taken the 10 million hush money and that was the end but I also wonder if that lack of satisfaction would actually leave I mean this is certainly I'm not coming up with this ideology, but something people think about. Like, would that leave us, that lack of catharsis, with more motivation to act, that level of discomfort? Do we, when you give your audience such satisfaction and catharsis, does it make us feel like, ah, okay, I don't have to act in my own life because the police got it? That's like a bigger, you don't have to answer that. I, but I just wonder, I wonder if, because I like the satisfaction, but I just wonder if it would be more motivating to have a less Hollywood ending. Obviously, this is a Hollywood movie, but... Let's go back to my analogy of the eroding environment, right? Like, he has done nothing to fix the situation going forward. He's hardly even blown the whistle. It's a <laughs> yeah. gratifying ending in many ways because at this point, you're rooting for the hero. Like, the first time you see this ending at the beginning of the film the car explodes and that's meant to kind of snap you out of the fact that you might not know what to expect. This might not be a linear story after all. Right. The second time, and, and it looks as if Michael Clayton is running from the explosion, but the second time you realize he's running toward it, that he is, and that's a very heroic thing to do, right? Like heroes always run toward the blast. Like that's what we hear. And so he's doing that. And he, he's like, oh, I'll let him think I'm dead. This gives me the upper hand. Because in that moment, he has realized somebody else is trying to outfix him. And that's not going to happen. You can't outfix the fixer. Because whether he's proud of his role or not, he's good at it. He knows he is. And so he's, gonna, he's, he's not going to allow that to be happen or allow that to take place. He's going he's gonna to get them. And he's like, 
my friend didn't die. He was murdered. He gets that now too. You know, I really do think like you get that, you get that part of the monologue of Arthur's at the very beginning of the movie. This is my interpretation, but I feel like those words have been rattling around in Michael Clayton's head for the last four days because it flashed back after that to four days earlier. And I think that's got to be true because that monologue was delivered to Michael Clayton and him only. Nobody else got to hear this. And so I think that we're meant to think that he he has all these emotions and, and regret and feelings and thoughts swirling around in his head along with those words. And when the car explodes, it solidifies what's actually going on. Someone's tried to kill him. Someone did kill Arthur. He knows who it is. He knows what's going on. He has one course of action if he isn't going to run away from it, and that's to run toward it. And I think in that moment, he, there's a misstep. He's doing it to vindicate himself, and he sees it as a way out totally. And I do want to talk about that, that scene in the cab a little bit too. But, but I think that what he should have done, and this is what I always did in my job, and like I said, it, it, it's not totally healthy to try and relate fictional characters in this way, but I'm a nerd. I can't help. I read a lot of comic books. I have a lot of opportunity to break this about myself and I can't, it's like hard to do. So I'm sitting here saying, well, I'm not going to make the same mistake that this fictional character made in my life. When I fix a problem, I'll put things in place to make sure that it doesn't happen again uh, because I'll be here again. I'll literally be in the same situation again. And my motto in life is to never say, I, I never put myself in a situation where I say, why do I always put myself in this situation? Like that's my actual motto in life. So I avoid that saying that because I know I've done it to myself. And Michael Clayton should have put things in place to make sure that didn't happen again. He should have been a legit whistleblower instead of saying I can get them on the murder and they'll get arrested. Ha ha, I win. He could have done something like where are the feds? Where is his law firm in trouble? Are they going to suffer any repercussions for defending these guys, knowing that they had this this document the whole time and, and that they admitted they were guilty and that the testing was flawed or whatever? We don't know. Mm. But yeah, I that's doubt interesting it. because he doesn't necessarily get a conscience at the end, right? Like he doesn't. Yeah. It's unclear if he actually mm. ever gave a fuck about the victims, Merritt Weaver's character. Like it's unclear that he cares about the actual poisoning or is this just an act, act to fix it for himself like does he end a selfish a fully selfish character and and fix it for his brother because Gilroy has added the plot choice and the added pressure of he asks his brother at some point to give him some kind of something that he can like break into Tom Wilkinson's apartment and then he gets the you know the cops get called on him so he's putting his brother's uh, job and pension in jeopardy it kind of like threads the needle of like oh well he has to he has to help his brother out by doing this sting operation. Otherwise, like he could put his brother's entire like, you know, pension and livelihood at risk. But I, that's that's so interesting that you guys are talking about it this way, because I really read the story as like, how do you turn someone who does some of the dirtiest work around? You know, like what would it require to basically radicalize someone? You know, Michael being like the fixer for this like dirty law firm. And then, you know, Arthur is sort of the the evangelist that kind of sent, you know, starts him on his journey. You know, it's it's a very like we're saying, it's a very clean ending. But I do I really appreciate it because it for me, I like stories about like, how do you turn someone who's completely unsympathetic and ostensibly a terrible person 
around? Like, how do you change that person's mind? And I, I think this story, for me, this story does it logically where I'm like, oh yeah, I could see how living through these events could turn someone like Michael around from being like, I'm going to be this fixer to no, this is all completely evil and completely inhumane and completely corrupt. And I'm no longer going to be a part of it anymore. I also think it's so interesting with Arthur. When we're introduced to Arthur, he's already had this like manic breakdown and is basically, you know, preaching the gospel of how evil this corporation is and how terrible this and how evil this work is that he's been doing. And it kind of feels like that thing when someone becomes radicalized for the first time where they're like, I need to tell everybody. I need to tell everybody about how how fucking crazy all of this shit is like have you guys learned about this system called capitalism and what it does to us like i need to tell everybody and then the reaction that that is usually met with by you know like people in your lives or whatever you know like i remember when i first was getting like radicalized and talking about this stuff more openly and like would hear things from friends or family that are like whoa frank you're really serious about this whole like <laughs> the world isn't doing very well stuff right now yes. uh, it yeah. seems like you're really taking this stuff seriously really worked up about this whole climate change thing so yeah i thought i, I that that felt true to me and in, in the way that everybody was writing arthur's character off in the movie is just like oh he's yes. just like he's just manic he's just having an episode yeah, I almost wish, I mean, I almost wish there wasn't this history of his mental illness, even though there is, there, it's in the story and it's interesting because you're not sure. But it, I do love that it's written in. He seems very sane. And I love the scene between him and Michael Clayton where Michael's like, I can't remember exactly what he says, but he's essentially like, you know, I can get you taken in to to an institution like I can I can take get you taken if I need to and he sort of snaps into this moment of the brilliant lawyer that we've been hearing he is and he totally gives him the rundown of how that's not going to happen so he's completely you're like this is a person who could still give a brilliant argument in court if he wanted to he doesn't want to anymore he doesn't want to play with these rules and it is coming across as quote-unquote insane but he seems very sane and grounded in a lot. It's just the insanity that will happen when you realize you're living, you, you wake up to your own sanity and recognize the world around you is insane. You are going to behave and it will make you sick and wild and crazy in a certain sense. And I loved, I loved that part. And Tom Wilkinson, one of his fucking best performances. He's unbelievable, unbelievable. in this movie. Yeah. It's as soon as like Michael Clayton's whole job is to, Get Arthur under control. Keep him from ruining everything that they've been working for. Sedate him. Get him back on task. He says, I'm tired of telling people that this is the cost of being a genius, right? And and he knows he's a genius. And they go, well, who do we have around here that could do that? And he's like, Arthur could do it. You know, that's why we have him around here. And it really is, once again, like, Maintain profit at all cost. This guy is suffering. This guy needs professional help. We could get that for him easily. They could make it, I don't know, part of his benefits package probably, but they don't. They just want to use him up until he's not there, until he's gone. And then they're like, oh, we'll have a little wake for him at the bar and we'll all toast him and that'll be that. And then we can't even stay. We got to go back to work. It's like, it's this horrible thing. And Sidney Pollack says at the wake, you know, he says, you know, like I, I knew Arthur for 30 years, 30 good years. And so awful, I can't even say it. And Michael says, yeah, we caught a lucky break. He's dead yeah. now. Yeah. 
Yeah, exactly. And how awful that is. Yeah. Yeah. And there are some, I, I like that you mentioned that it felt real because there was another moment to me that felt very real. You know, like we said, the law firms undergoing this whole buyout, this merger and the employees like Michael, Michael Clayton's, uh, assistant is very panicky about it. And she keeps saying like, do you know what's going on with the merger? They said, they said the boss was out to lunch, but then we hear he's in London. What's going on? Is this happening? What's happening? And that's how it is. Like, I, I don't know if you guys have experience with this, but I was in a company that changed owners multiple times. And every single time, the employees, the people who are there every single day, the people who they keep referring to as we're just a big family, which is such garbage, hmm. they're the ones in the dark. They're the ones that are like, oh, no, I'm about to be a casualty of this thing. I'm about to be redundant. I'm about to be unnecessary. Whereas when I woke up this morning, I was dedicated to this place, right? And so I, I, that happened a couple of times in the movie, and I felt like that was very sincere. Like that writing to me felt like it was from personal experience. Yeah. I mean, that resonates so much now where I, I've been observing how much as a freelancer and an artist, you're you sort of take that part of the deal is like nothing's ever going to be quote unquote stable. But now this myth, the myth of stability in any kind of court, you know, with all the layoffs in any kind of corporate state that the myth of stability under capitalism, it's just an illusion. Like it's actually none of it's stable. It, it can't be because then you can keep growing and growing and shedding and shedding those people who are not helping you profit and nothing's stable. If he, if Michael Clayton is an anti-hero in this, then I think his redemption arc is like an anti-redemption arc and it's not clean. You know what I mean? It's just enough for him to stop doing what he's doing, which is probably step one, right? Like just stop being associated with this law firm, get out, right? They're probably going to sue you now or whatever, but who cares? You're out. Maybe not because there's legal consequences for the client, who knows? But anyway, He's done. And there's this moment at the end where he gets in the cab and he gives it, he's like, just give me 50 bucks. That's the director driving the cab, by the way. That's Tony oh, Gilroy. Wow. Oh, wow. He's, he, he has one line. He goes, what are we doing here? And he's like, here's 50. <laughs> just give me 50. Just drive. That moment to me is like a bookend to the monologue at the beginning where Arthur says he exited a building and he's walking toward the car, but he doesn't get there. He stops in traffic and has this massive hallucination about what he thinks is a rebirth, but becomes something completely different. And so I thought that at the end here, this is Michael Clayton reenacting that because if, if it was true that those words were swirling around in his mind at the beginning, those, that dialogue from his friend who he now knows is murdered and who, in that same moment refers to Michael Clayton as the secret hero. He's like, of course they sent you. Who else? The secret hero. That kind of clues you into the fact that he is going to do something mildly heroic by the end, right? Maybe he's not like this overt hero, but he's a secret hero. So he's reenacting this that part of the monologue for the from the beginning where he's exited a building now and that maybe he can undergo some sort of transformation, or rebirth. And I don't know if the cab is supposed to represent returning to the womb, literally, but there is this sort of like warmth and safety. You know how people, when you're in a car, you feel like you're in a bubble. 
And if you're in a cab in New York and there's all this stuff going on around you, you're still just inside the cab by yourself. It's just you and the cabbie and you're just driving around. And I think that maybe, I don't know, Phoenix rising from the ashes is accurate here, but I think that he doesn't know where he's going to be let out. And this is me mm. probably just doing head cannon and over-interpreting things for, my, for myself because I've seen the movie too many times. But if you don't know where you're going to be let out of the cab, then the future is kind of open, right? Yeah. And so that to me was like, oh, that they made a point of saying at the beginning, I left the building, I, may, I was walking to my car, I didn't get there. And now Michael Clayton does do that, but what does he do? It, it was just his goal to make it to the car, whereas Arthur didn't. And so he, he wanted to reenact that. And it does make for sort of a bookend, if you look at it that way, for the whole movie. And then he's just driving around. And I think that it takes a great actor to just kind of sit there and not look like an idiot. Like, he looked super cool just sitting in the back of the cab. Like, that's like a real George Clooney moment for me. Like, that's memorable, where he's just sitting there kind of looking around outside the window. I thought that was... Like incredibly well done because I don't, I mean, you guys are the actors. You tell me, is that easy to do? Just sitting there acting like you're not acting? No, that's usually, at least for me, that's usually some of the hardest acting that you have to do is just like, just, just be, just be. And like (laughs) pretend like nothing is going on. But I totally agree with you, Matt. I I take that ending as yes, it's it, it echoes the the monologue from the beginning. And it's the first time that he's just allowing himself to be with himself and there's no external pressures there's no external or internal pressures and he has no has no need to be anywhere or do anything or fill any kind of a hole that is inside of him you know the one time he thinks that like when he thinks he's he's done with the job and like Arthur's dead and he gets his bonus check and whatever the first thing he does is go back to the card tables and in this scenario he's actually like cleansed of this whole thing and all he wants and all he needs is to just be present and be by himself and have that unknowable future the unknowing of where he's going to get off next so it it does it feels like even though it's in a cabin in new york city it feels like a return to a more natural state for for michael and that kind of like again reinforces for me like this the, the natural versus the unnatural Oh, I also wanted to mention, you know, the moment that actually saves his life is him seeing horses just like on a field right? and being like, I'm just going to go walk over to these horses. Like he's just been the swirl of all of the drama and all of the, you know, this espionage that's been happening around him. He just takes this moment of serenity to just like go walk over to these horses ends up Weren't being the, the choice that actually saves the his life. Weren't, didn't yeah, he? Wasn't the horses were also a call. Horses were a callback to the oh. book. Oh, which I loved that theme of the book. And I loved that theme of the so-called sci-fi epic. It goes back to like, what do we call madness? What do we call faith and spirituality? These things that are considered, you know, the mad prophet realm. I love that he connected with that. Arthur connected with Michael's son who was reading this book and all, I mean, this was my favorite plot line that all the son wanted was for his dad to read the freaking book and he was so excited about the themes of this book and michael clayton like just couldn't didn't have the time mental space or desire to really connect with his son in that way but it's arthur who reads the book and is fascinated by it and is just and is talking to his son on the phone and he's like this is the answer and when he reaches down to the book when he's going through arthur's apartment he finds it and opens up and there's the picture of the horses so i love that that also to me if there was a tracking 
for Michael's character was really important because I think not only, like you're saying, is it this connection to nature, but it's this connection to truth and maybe a, a truth that really, like, this child has that Arthur sort of comes back to, but it's like the the depth that 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 you know a child has because they haven't been touched by all the cynicism and corporations and capitalism of the world and so he but i love that that he sort of see it's just like a moment of coincidence and someone's saying something higher to him like he's tapping into a spiritual truth and he's not fully trusting of it but then it does save his life yeah it's like that simple understanding that a child has has of what is right and what is wrong that becomes yes. murky, you know, murkier and more compromised as we get older. But for a child, it's like, no, that's the right thing to do. And that's the wrong thing. To do. Like, but that's again, good, if that's you bad. align with that, as Arthur does, you're crazy. Like, that's actually crazy yes. and childlike. And yeah. I loved I loved that. And my hope is that, yeah, he'll spend more time. He'll read the damn book for his child's sake. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah, I get that's... it. It looks like his kid was a little obsessed, but like, read the book. He left it at your house, Michael. All right, Matt. Well, this is the point in the episode where we like to give out awards for this movie. We have three of them. The first award is Best Politics. Goes to the character with the best politics in the movie. Yeah, I think the guy who had the best politics was the bookie. Now, ooh, <laughs> the 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 yeah. deck collector because he was terrifying in the way he was so chill. Right. He's yeah. very calm and he's like, this is just business. And so I think that that is the hate the game, not the player. Mm. And if there was a different game, he would play along with that. And so I thought that and and he he would threaten consequences, but it was never like it was never a show of force. It was never done in a manner that would um, be like, you know, I have brass knuckles right here. It wasn't like that. It was like, they're not going to be happy. We got to do this. I'll give you more time. I'm trying to help out. And so I thought that he, I think that in this thing where, and I always say this, it's like, I, I could declare that I'm a socialist right now, but I'm a capitalist by default. I just, this is the world we live in. And so we have, we have to kind of play along to a degree. And so I think that the best politics isn't someone who rejects all of it, I think it's someone who is willing to, and um, this is a reach for this one character, but I think that the best <laughs> politics come from somebody who's trying to reform the system from within. And they're trying to play the game, but outside of the regulations that have been set by like the state, which we can see are totally corrupt and crooked anyway. And so anyway, that's why I like that guy's politics. Interesting. I like that. I, I mean, no, 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 I like that. I like that. I, I hear what you're saying because he is—he's trying to help Michael. Like as much as he is doing his job, he's like, I—he's like, I understand what I am doing, and I am trying to make this as humane as possible. Uh, it's tough for me to like fully give him this award because he will yeah. kill Michael for money. Yeah, so, <laughs> but there's, <laughs> but there's not a lot of other options really i mean i, I was guess, gonna say yeah i guess Who? i would say arthur but like only arthur in this last like one percent of his life because prior to this moment like arthur is ostensibly one of the worst people in this movie um yeah but post his but post his revelation he has pretty stellar politics i don't know ripka did you have someone arthur's politics i think i would say are not yet 
there hasn't been enough time to like because there is still always the possibility <laughs> that this is like yeah. a massive ego trip as well like i am suddenly the prophet the hero it I'm hasn't Shiba been God long enough yeah i'm exactly yeah it, it hasn't been long enough to to see and i think that's important when you're giving this award i'd say i think anna um, who Merritt Weaver plays, the plaintiff in the case against you know, oh, sure. the farmer. Because I think, and I also think it's a very, it's a small role, but it's so impactful. Merritt Weaver is such an amazing actor. We love Merritt Weaver. Yeah. I think she gets on the plane and she gives yeah. this beautiful monologue when Michael Clayton comes to visit her at the hotel room in New York about... You know, she has to go through. She's not even sure she trusts Arthur. She's not totally out to lunch that she's not like, this guy's a little crazy to get naked in a, like, a deposition. Like, but she's so brave. And just she is one of those few people not in the kitchen who we get it. We get the rough sense of like the people who are really being victimized by this whole system. And she, to me, that's like the, that's the courage and the bravery of a real whistleblower. Like if there's anyone in here who's really the whistleblower, it's her. She has the most to lose. She's so disposable that they just don't even, you know, it's that she's, and she's so young and has never been out of Wisconsin and just gets on this plane to New York to be an accomplice in this in a long truth yeah so it's i'm even talking myself into it further it's anna i think you're right yeah, <laughs> yeah she's the okay. one that we can <laughs> all right our next award is worst politics who is the character with the worst politics wow. there's a low we got is a great is a stacked uh, nominee <laughs> list for this one i i mean don jeffries was the ultimate villain i think he's the emperor palpatine here i think mm. he's yeah the, He's the big bad, as the kids say. <laughs> if, for me, it's like that one scene at the end says it all. Like I was saying, he, he needs the cops. There they are. Has there even been a crime? <laughs> He's just annoyed by somebody. And just that level of entitlement He and, and the fact that he is he is going to bat for his company and promoting his company despite this massive class action lawsuit. And uh, he doesn't seem to have any emotion about it at all until someone gets in his way at the very end and annoys him. There's even a time where I guess it's like his secretary comes into the room or something. And he, they're filming and he's like, hold on, hold on here. And he's like, what? We're filming. You know, and it's like, screw this guy. He just gets annoyed at the drop of a hat because how dare you, right? He's so important. Mm. And so I just have to assume he's got bad politics. Think about the money he's donating to who, right? Oh, yeah. He's got to, he's trying to deregulate the entire planet. Like, there's nothing good about this guy. So I would say he is the face of you, North. They're the villain. He's got the worst politics. Yeah, he signed off on that original memorandum right, on the that, on the yeah. research report. He knew he knows. he knows where all of the bodies are buried. Yep. He's the one who suggests who gives Karen the information to, you know, Mr. Vern and the two hitmen. Yep. So clearly right. like he's been he's the in he was the in-house counsel, but he also does like the real dirty work on yeah. the side. Yeah, he's yeah, not he's, sweating. He's not having any of that right. natural response that you're mentioning, Frank, which is really interesting. I think Karen's relationship with Don is really interesting. It's so well written. It's very subtle, but the way in which 
in that interview that they're giving, she sort of has this looking up to him like daddy gave me the job and permission. And you just there's like so much detail there and not a lot of time spent on it. But Tilda Swinton imbues her performance with so much nuance. It's it's really profound to watch. Another unbelievable performance in this movie. She won. She was this was nominated for seven Academy Awards, I believe. And Tilda Swinton won. For this She's fucking phenomenal in this. Yeah. Um, and also, like, they don't, it's never spoken, but you can feel in her performance the pressure that she feels as, like, a woman in this very male-dominated yeah. world and everything that she's willing to compromise. And, you know, she's probably, we get the sense that this is, like, a person who has just, like, just worked so hard to prove herself. And the fact that she has to, like, mm-hmm. now push herself over this this new, like, ethical, moral edge to to get the job done. She, she would be, like, my second place for worse politics. Because she does order the hit on Arthur and Michael. and Which is another one of my favorite scenes. The scene with her and the hitman where she can't actually articulate what she wants. It's, again, it's, like, one of those things where she, like, cannot verbalize it. Like, it's, like, her body is, like, refusing her to actually mm. say the words aloud because she knows how wrong it is. I mean, it's like, it's played for laughs, but I think that that's a very, that like, it felt very true in that moment. All right. So our last award goes to best supporting or spinoff character. The character that we either wish we could see a movie about, wish this movie was about, or would love to see a spinoff movie about. Yeah, that's a good one. I go right to Henry. Oh, Michael son. son. Yeah, I think that because if you see that, if if you look at Michael Clayton as being a product of his environment and his upbringing, then what's Henry? Because he's gotten a chance to see the good and the bad, and and he has tools to work with, and and he's already embraced this sense of right and wrong, and like you said, that gets muddy as you get older, but he's already been exposed to that. He's seen that, and so. There's this one scene where, this is why I'm kind of leaning this way. There, there's this one scene where Michael Clayton's dropping him off at school and he says, go teach these people something. And I think that's such like a lame thing to say to a kid. Like, don't make him delusional at that young of an age. He's not going <laughs> to teach him. He's there to learn. You know what I mean? And it's like, oh, because he's your son. He's the smartest person in the room all the time. I just hated that. But then later, when they just see Uncle Timmy and Uncle Timmy's crying and he's obviously like, you know, he's like, I've been clean for a few days or whatever. He pulls him over and says, um, I'm just going to read this real quickly. He says, your Uncle Timmy, and I mean this, on his best day is never as tough as you. I'm not talking about crying or drugs or anything like that. I'm talking about in his heart, in his heart. Do you understand me? All And all this charming bullshit, this Big Tim, Uncle Boss bullshit. And he's like swearing to the kid, which is, that's big when you're a kid, right? And and I know you love him, and I know why. But when you see him like that, you don't have to worry because that's not um, that's not how it's going to be for you. You're not going to be one of these people who goes through life wondering why shit keeps falling out of the sky around them. I know that. I know it. Okay. I see it every time I look at you. I see it right now. I don't know where you got it from, but you got it. Okay. So I think there's very good things in store for Henry. He's the purest character in the whole thing, right? And I think that. If there were a spinoff about him, whether it was like, you know, a series, a mini series, I like when they do three 90 minute episodes, like the BBC does three 90 minute episodes. I think if you did three 90 minutes on Henry Clayton, 
it would be very rewarding. <laughs> I think he's probably some sort of a fictional writer and uh, also an activist. Yeah, or he could that. be like a public defender or, Maybe. you know, like or like a like an environmental lawyer or he becomes like a cop and is like a Boy Scout wants to clean up the department or something. Uh, I was just like so taken this watch by Sidney Pollock's performance as Marty Bach, one of the partners at the law firm. I don't really have anything for him. I just want to like watch more of Sidney Pollock playing that kind of just like, oh, God, like I got to go through this shit. So I would like watch a movie about like what immediately happens after the events of this movie to Marty Bach in his law firm and just like watching him deal with the fallout. And maybe he has some sort of, you know, like radicalization redemption arc. But sadly, Sidney Pollack is no longer with us. So I know that it would that's be impossible. It'd be Marty well, Bach not with AI. in London. Yeah, not with That's, AI. And and this right. was I think this was like his second to last movie, but but yeah, wouldn't it be cool if they sent him to London? And yeah. cuz cuz of the merger and then it's like Marty Bach in London. I I don't know, that might be cool. <laughs> yeah, I love all those picks. I was I mean, I wanted more Karen Crowder. I just think there was so much to mine there. I'd oh, love yeah. a whole Karen yeah. Crowder maybe yeah, origin good. story, but for a funny one. I couldn't stop. I can't stop thinking about the guy and the line he gives at the gambling table about his. He's kind of egging on Michael about his uh, restaurant failing. And he's like, yeah, well, you lost. He's like, don't you remember me? Don't you remember me? He's like, you lost. A, yeah, you lost a lot of weight or you gave something like that. But he's like, yeah, I bought all my hair with your. He was like, you were bald. I was like, I bought all my hair with the money I got from you. That guy's got some chutzpah. And also, <laughs> that line just stuck with me. Like, he'll just pop into my head once in a while. I'm like, what? Bought all that hair and he's back at the table. Something's interesting about that guy to me. Yeah. So I'm, gi I'm giving him a movie. Greenlit. Well, <laughs> there was another guy at that card game. Remember, he goes, oh, if I wanted to hear an interview, I'd stay home and watch Larry King or whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Maybe, yeah. maybe it just needs to be a spinoff about this revolving group of gamblers card players that yeah, might be cool yeah yeah uh, back room, watch that back room card games always <laughs> great great setting for anything um i yeah. found out recently that my grandmother was running uh back room card games out of her apartment Ooh. for ah. a lot of like a lot of like the 60s and the 70s and that's how she made a lot of her income wow. Damn. which i thought was cool as hell nice cool as hell it's cool awesome as hell. All right, well, Matt, this has been s such a joy. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having us on your show. Uh, I hope we'll we'll do some sort of crossover event again in the future. But cool. Uh, before we we'll wrap, draw you. Time. Just kidding. Uh, yeah. I, that'd be great. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> yeah, if you want to see the most dog shit drawing ever, I I put to refuse. paper. I'm pretty. I'm actually pretty good. So I'm terrible. For yourself, there we Frank. go. I am. I am speaking for myself. <laughs> Frank will be doing uh, finger painting. <laughs> that's <Yeah>. cool. <laughs> I could do like a hand turkey version of you. <laughs> but Matt, before we wrap, the last thing we like to ask our guests is, you know, how do you live your values, whether they be anti-capitalist values or what have you? How do you live your values in your everyday life? Could be an organization you work with, a practice you engage in. But yeah, what does that mean for you? Well, I spend a lot of my time promoting viewer-supported uh, media figures and and news outlets. Most of the news that we consume is corporate sponsored weapons manufacturers owning news outlets to tell you what you need to know. Yeah. I don't know. 
I don't know if that's what you need to know. I think that's what they want you to know and how they want you to hear it. And so what I do is I spend a lot of time promoting people, no matter how big or small, who make make their money through some sort of media advocacy or activism. And so a lot of times that's very socialist leaning. It's very anti-capitalist just by nature um, of being on the left. And if you look at politics these days, you can almost relate every negative aspect of our society and politics and government back to money and capitalism, right? If you wanted to, you could draw those parallels all day long and connect those dots all day long. And so what I do is I make it my point to, even with people with larger platforms than me already, I want to be just another person contributing to their success. And so by promoting them and platforming them, whether I co-sign their beliefs verbatim or not, I want people to know that they have alternatives to what um, is basically corporate sponsored media and, and propaganda of the state. And I want people to know that they have alternatives and I want them to know they have alternatives within those alternatives. There's a lot of different conversation going on out there while commenting on politics and the news and current affairs and global affairs. And that conversation is valuable to how people are now able to digest what is being commented on the actual news stories. And that's not something that you always genuinely get. You know, a lot of news pundits are politicians. <laughs> I don't know if we yep. can believe them or not. You know what I mean? Probably sure. not. Yeah. I don't choose to. And so that's one way that I live my life trying to give voice to people who are very grassroots in how they comment on and deliver today's news. That's awesome. It's awesome. So important. Thank you so much for coming on. Yeah, we really Thank appreciate you. it. Oh, yeah, this was awesome. I mean, anytime you want to talk about movies, we don't even have to record it. We can just talk about <laughs> it if you want. Just call me. Cool. I'll call you in about like 20 minutes. Okay. <laughs> Thank you all so much for listening. Make sure to follow us on Instagram and TikTok. And if you want to support this show and get access to our premium episodes, you can go to MVC Pod to find all of that information. For next week's movie, we'll be watching Tim Robbins' 1999 film about the Federal Theater Project, Cradle Will Rock, with MVC all-star Harvey K. Thank you all. Bye. <laughs>